Well, John told you that I had a lot of jobs. My wife used to say I couldn't keep a job. That was the problem. And, uh, but, on the other hand, I have stayed in a job I am now. Uh, I'm in my 20th year. I wouldn't tell you that except they're looking for somebody new. And uh, on October 1st, the committee of Mission of the World began the search for a new coordinator. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll pray about that. And if you have somebody you think ought to have that job, you can uh, send in a nomination. All you have to do is put your name down, the name of the person that you think uh, could do that job, why you think that person would be good. You have to give some rationale for your nomination. But please be in prayer that they find the right person to be the coordinator. As, uh, some, as it was said, uh, coordinator, you know, I used to be a president and I worked for a board. And now I'm a coordinator and I work for a committee. And uh, I can't tell the difference, really. Uh, it's about the same. But uh, Mission World is one of the uh, 20 largest mission organizations in the world. We're not one of the 20 largest denominations in the world, but we're one of the largest mission organizations in the world. And uh, we work in 80 different countries. So it is a big ministry. I think it is what has blessed our denomination greatly. We said we would stand for the inerrancy of God's word, the Reformed faith, and the Great Commission. And I think putting those three together has given vitality to our denomination. I also believe that it's given stability to our denomination. If you only uh, are concerned about the first two, which are vitally important, don't get me wrong, You've got to begin with God's word, and I believe the truth of the Reformed faith, but if that is where your focus is alone, you're going to end up staring at your own belly button, and uh, God never intended us to do that at all. He intended us to have a vision to the world, and that's the theme for this conference uh, day, as you know, Hickson, Samaria, and the world. That's your theme. If you don't know that, I will remind you right now, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to where that idea came from, Acts chapter 1. And as you turn to this text, I want you to think about these words. I think sometimes we read that eighth verse, and we think, what a great invitation to be a part of God's mission work. Let me tell you, it's more than that. It is an invitation, but it is more than an invitation. Really, this is God declaring what he is going to do. You know, if, if you were, had been there on the day when God brought the heavens and the earth into being, whether there was a big bang or not, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, I think it would have been pretty exciting. Uh, you'd have been kind of blown away by it all. Well, these words are like those words because in these words, Jesus is telling us what he plans to do to restore that which God created in the first place. That's really what these words are. And we're going to focus on them in that way. Let me now read God's word. We're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, or Hickson, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do believe that this is your holy word. These are not simply words on a page. We believe that they were written by the Holy Spirit. We believe that when we study them together in worship, it is as if you were here speaking to us. And so we come asking that you will do just that. We've come to hear you speak to us in worship, and we pray that you will do that. We ask that your Holy Spirit will attend to these words, his words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, these are far more than just an invitation to be involved in God's mission work around the world. First of all, these are the last words of Jesus while he was here on earth. And last words, you know, they're important. Just a week ago, I was reading a book that has 30 biographies of great Christian people. Many of them suffered, many of them martyrs. And it was interesting, I would say at least in 75% of those, it ended with their last words. Machen's last words were, thank God for the act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I always liked that. Machen's one of my heroes. I can't understand why he would go to North Dakota in the middle of the winter uh, for a Bible conference. That is beyond me. I grew up in northern Minnesota, so I know that's not a good idea. And uh, he did get pneumonia, and he died there. And his last words were, Thank God for the act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. No no hope without it. Aren't those great words? These are Jesus' last words on earth. Here in verse 8, But you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is our conference theme. And it's no accident that those are Jesus' last words. Because I believe Jesus is telling us something about what he's about and and, uh, what he plans to do. You see, my Bible says the Acts of the Apostles, right up on the top of the page. That's the title. Yours may just say, the Acts. Somebody a long time ago, and I thought it was a good idea, said that we should change this to the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Really, though, these are the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he ascended into heaven, listen to this, by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people. 
Now, I know you wouldn't want that to be a title. It's too long. Sounds like a dissertation. But that's really what these words are. This is a book about what Jesus is doing through his church. Not what we're doing, but what he is doing. That's why I say when you read these words, they ought to be something like those first words that brought the heavens and the earth into being in the first place because what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm leaving, but I'm not quitting. Quite frankly, what Jesus is saying is, I'm leaving because I've accomplished everything I plan to do here on this earth, but when I leave, my work is not going to slow down. My work is going to be revved up. I'm going to do more, not less. I'm not leaving because I'm tired and I need a rest. This is not a furlough. I'm not leaving, you know, because I need to get reinforcements. Definitely not leaving because I somehow have been defeated. You know, over in John, we read in uh, John chapter 16, words that used to confuse me a lot. Jesus says in verse 19, uh, excuse me, in verse um, 7 of verse six of chapter 16 of John, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, help, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, when I was young, I would read that scripture and I would think, I don't know if I believe that. You know, I really think if Jesus were here personally, I'd be a lot better off. In fact, I used to think about uh, just walking around the block with Jesus. If he would just come long enough for me to walk around the block, I think it would change my Christian life entirely. Now, I was quite young. I lived on 19th Avenue East and 7th Street. So I would think about if I just walked from 19th on 7th Street to 20th Avenue, up 20th Avenue to 8th Street, 8th Street back to 19th Avenue and down, one block, I, I would think, what a difference that would make. I mean, I think that that would energize me. I think I would feel a lot closer to God. I think I could do a lot more. And then I would read this. And Jesus would say, no, you're a lot better off because I've left. Because I'm going to do in you things that you, don't, you wouldn't believe. Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's going to be me living in you. You see, this book of Acts is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus does in us. If you look over in John and uh, chapter 14, words that are even more confusing to some of us. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do. And then these words, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. How do you believe that? I mean, that you are going to do... Jesus walked on water. Have you tried that? Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus raised people from the dead. And yet Jesus says that you are going to do greater things than I have done. Why? Why? Because what Jesus is saying is, 
I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. This is also a passage on the Holy Spirit, just like chapter 16. There's a lot on the Holy Spirit right there in that portion of Scripture. And Jesus is saying, when I send the Holy Spirit to you, it's going to be me and you. And I'm going to be working all over the world. I'm going to be working in Hickson, and I'm going to be working in Samaria, and I'm going to be working to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what he's actually saying. He's saying, we're going to do greater things because he's going to be doing them. I'm going to be able to do greater things because when I was here in the body, I could be here, and then I could be here, and then I could be here, but now I'm going to be everywhere. And that's literally what is happening. God is working all over the world. And we're seeing the gospel moving all over the world. Things that we would never believe. You know, I find a lot of Christians are, are kind of discouraged. Uh, there does seem to be a waning of the influence of the church in our country. Some people think we're drifting towards uh, the church in Western Europe. Listen, we're not losing. I heard somebody say recently that the fastest growing religion in the world is Islam. Well, yes, that's true if you're talking about per capita. But look, the PCA, the denomination we belong to, we used to brag that we were the fastest growing denomination in the United States. For 10 years we said that. Now, I wish we could still say that, by the way, but we can't. We've heard, reached a plateau, and we ought to pray about that. But during those 10 years, would we have traded the numerical growth of the Southern Baptist or the numerical growth of the Church of God for our growth? We'd have been silly if we didn't. You see, when we said we were the fastest growing denomination in the country, we were talking about per capita growth. They're 15 times larger than we are. That means they have to grow 15 times faster or 15 times more people have to join them for them to have a per capita growth greater than ours. But their numerical growth was greater. The church of Jesus Christ is still growing faster than Islam. More people come to faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than join Islam. We're three times larger. That's the reason people can say per capita they're growing faster. You see, God is working and he's working mightily. Here in Acts chapter 1, we read in those first words, in the, book, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. That verse is not unimportant. It's not an introduction you can just skip over. First of all, you've got to understand, and it's quite obvious, that the man who's writing this book wrote another book. His name is Luke. In fact, Luke wrote more words in the New Testament than anyone else. Some people think it's Paul because he wrote 13 letters. Luke only wrote two books, but they're much larger, and so there are more words by Luke in the New Testament. And what Luke is saying is that in the first book, I told you what Jesus did when he was here on this earth. I told you what he did. That was in the first part of the book. Then I told you what he taught. That's in the second part of the book. And then I showed you his passion. His death and resurrection, that's the conclusion of the book. Now I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to tell you what Jesus did 
or what Jesus is doing now on this earth. In other words, what he's doing in Jerusalem and Hickson and Samaria and the other most parts of the world. Now, does anybody think that Jesus failed in the first part? I don't know of anybody who understands. He didn't fail at all. He did everything he planned to do. It was all prophesied in the Old Testament. There were no mistakes. There was no surprises in Jesus' life. Well, does anybody think Jesus is going to fail in the second book? Of course not. You see, the gospel is not going to fail because it is not your plan or my plan. It is Jesus' plan. And we're not going to fail because we don't do it in our strength. We do it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice in verse 4 that it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to what? Wait. It's not a suggestion, is it? It's wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard from me. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You see, what Jesus was saying is, don't you dare go out and try to do what I'm calling you to do in your own strength. If you do, you're going to fall flat on your face. But if you wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, you cannot fail. And then, of course, the verse, which is our theme verse itself, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, let me ask you something. Do you take the Holy Spirit seriously? And I mean, I ask that question seriously because I find that a lot of Presbyterians think the Trinity is a couple. We don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. We don't pray for the Holy Spirit. We don't depend on the Holy Spirit. I don't want to give the Holy Spirit simply to the charismatic church. I think it is one of the reasons the charismatic church is the fastest growing church around the world right today because they take seriously the Holy Spirit. But we ought to take the Holy Spirit just as seriously. In the last three months, my wife and I, we've taken two trips, mission trips, and in the first one, we had no clue of where we were going. We arrived late at night. In fact, it was 1130 at night. We had to catch a train, a fast train, into this major capital in Europe, and uh, we were told, uh, don't get off at the first stop, get off at the second stop. We prayed for the Holy Spirit to help us. I didn't know what the Spirit would do. I didn't know how he would lead us, but I knew we needed help. We got off at the second stop, 1130 at night, this cavernous area down underground. There was nobody there except one lady sitting right in front of us. We pulled our bags over there, and we were questioning whether we should go out that way or we should go out that way. We knew that would make a lot of difference. We would probably be a half a mile away from where we needed to go if we were out the wrong way. We couldn't even read the language. And the young lady sitting on a bench said, do you need help? We said, Yes. She said, okay. She said, what do you need? I said, well, here is the address we need to go. Which way should we go out? She said, you should go out that way, not that way. If you go out that way, you're going to have to walk around the National Palace. And then she said, oh, by the way, I know what I'm talking about because I just got off work. I work at the Tourist Information Bureau. 
no kidding, the Holy Spirit put the Tourist Information Bureau down underground, and she was the only one there. And just as we were about to depart, she said, oh, there comes my train, and it was on the other side of the platform. She jumped up and ran over there. She should have been even sitting on the other side. We'd have never even seen her. God did that. A week and a half ago, we went to a country we can't even mention, uh, to a place where it's illegal to do Christian work of any sort. Frankly, uh, there is a warning out by our government that you should go there because they're thinking about, ca- uh, about kidnapping Americans. And so my whole family said, don't go. And really and truly, I thought about not going, but I committed myself to meet with these 40 pastors for a week uh, in these several countries around that area. Um, and we made the commitment, we decided to go. And uh, so we went, and uh, they said, don't leave the airport until you get there, until somebody comes to find you. We didn't know who was going to find us, but we prayed again for the Holy Spirit. We were found. I got to the place where I was going. I needed to be translated uh, into a very difficult language, and I looked at this young girl, about 21 years of age. I said, how many translators do we have, five days, seven hours a day. How many translators do we have? She said, I'm it. I said, you got to be kidding. It's hard enough to lecture for seven hours. To translate for seven hours is a killer. You'll never make it. She said, I know. I'm worried. I said, let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit will help us. At the end of the five days, she said, we made it. I said, yeah, because we prayed for the Holy Spirit. She said, it worked. I said, of course. Listen, I don't think depending on the Holy Spirit is a great mystery. I think you only got to do three things. You got to believe in the Holy Spirit. You got to pray for the Holy Spirit. Then you got to act as if the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That's simple. You don't need to have any great earth-shaking emotional experience. Just believe, pray, and then act as if he's real, because he is. That's what this text says. I said if we believe that God is working, we are going to believe that he cannot fail. You know, the gospel is spreading all over the world. Let me give you some statistics, just so you can see that we're not losing. In the year 100 AD, there were only 181 million people on the earth. I don't mean Christians. I mean the whole population of the world was 181 million people. That's about 75 years after Jesus spoke these words that we're looking at this morning. But there were half a million Christians by that time. That's one Christian for every 362 people. Now we're going to leap ahead 2,000 years to the year 1900. The world's population has been going crazy We now have 1.62 billion people on the planet. We go from 181 million to 1.62 billion, but there are now 40 million Christians. That's one Christian for every 40 people. Now, if we just move ahead 20, uh, excuse me, 80 years to 1980, remember there were 1.62 billion in 1900. Now there are 4.5 billion people. In 80 years, we go from 1.6 to 
to 4.5 billion people. You see what's happening in the world's population? But the, world, but the church is growing faster. There are 275 million Christians. That's one Christian for every 16 people. Now if we jump ahead just to 2004, 24 years, the world's population is now 6.2 billion. 6.2 billion, but there are 677 million Christians. That's one Christian for every nine people. We're not losing. By the way, I did not think that in my lifetime I would see 7 billion people on the earth. I really didn't. It just seemed to me to be impossible. Well, last November, almost a year ago, the world's population reached 7 billion. I don't have statistics on the church, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's one Christian for every eight and a half people or something like that. The church continues to grow because this is not your idea, it's not my idea. It's Christ's idea. This is his work. It's the work he carries on on this earth through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this text tells us. You know, I told you we work in 80 different countries. Last year we started a work in Nepal. In 1956 there were three small congregations, less than 100 people, 100 Christians in the entire country of Nepal. It was a very closed country to the gospel. Today, there are over a million Christians in Nepal in just that short time. Some years ago, actually 1839, excuse me, 1858, a man named John Patton went to the New Hebrides, now called Vanuatu. We now work in Vanuatu. In fact, we work on the very island where John Patton started his work. There's a group of people there called the John from Cargo Cult. Kind of a funny name. You can Google them when you go home if you want. They'll pop right up on your screen. You'll see they march around in uniforms that look a lot like Navy uniforms. They carry around poles that are sort of like guns. And uh, they actually worship the time when we sent 100,000 men to Vanuatu to invade the South Pacific in the Second World War. There was a chief who said just before the Second World War that if they would leave this white man's religion, go back to their pagan ways, the gods would bless them. And they got all kinds of things, jeeps and trucks and air conditioners and fans and all the kinds of things that 100,000 people leave when they leave at the end of a war. And they said, see, it works. But God wasn't through with the John Frum cargo cult. It's what's great about our God. He's a covenant God, and he doesn't quit. In fact, you're a Christian because he didn't quit on you, by the way. But that's another story. He doesn't quit. And uh, so about eight years ago, one of those men claims he saw a vision. Bring your people back to the gospel. The chief of the main village there called Sulphur Bay, had a young son that was college age, and the people in the church, happens to be the Presbyterian Church of Vanuatu, after all, John Patton was a Scot, and uh, 
so uh, there's a lot of Presbyterians there. They have a little Bible school up on another island, and they asked the chief if he wanted to send his son to college, and he said yes. So for four years, the son was up on Santos. He came back to Tan Island, but now he's a believer. He said to his dad, could I build a church here in the village? He said, no, but you can do it outside of the city here, outside the village here, and so he did. Well, one night, the young man said that he had a vision, and that was that something bad was going to happen in Sulphur Bay. The people should get out. Well, while he was down there telling his father and the people, the bell up at the church started ringing. I've been to Vanuatu. They make bells out of acetylene tanks, you know, an oxygen tank, those things you see in hospitals and things like that. They're about this tall with a little thing on the top. They just cut the bottom off, put a rock in there, or they bang it with a machete. And, and the, the bell started ringing. They sent somebody up to shut him off or shut down the bell ringer, and uh, the man came back and said, uh, there's nobody up there, but the bell is ringing. Well, these people are superstitious anyhow, so they decide to spend the night in the church. That night, the dam broke under the volcano that's right there and uh, flooded the village, washed it out into the ocean, but the people were all right. Since then, there's been a great revival. 8,000 people have come to faith. Jesus didn't give up on the John Fromm cargo cult. Well, I could give you other illustrations about that, but what I want to encourage you about is this. God has called you, and you're part of his great work, this work of restoration in this world, this kingdom work, and he wants to do something great through you by filling you with the Holy Spirit. In a moment, you're going to have the faith promise uh, pledge, and I want you to even think about that. That is a wonderful way to be involved. I know that somebody like me is supposed to talk about money and so on. Look, I talk about money not because God needs money, but because you need to give it, and that's the truth. Some years ago, in the faith promise in our church, it was a brand new faith promise. We'd never done it before, and the preacher really was excited about it, and he really preached it, and my wife and I, we became convicted, and we said, we're going to give the same amount to the faith promise we gave to the church a year before. Well, about eight weeks later, I took an $8,000 decrease in income. And uh, we hadn't been giving anything like $8,000 to the church. This was a long time ago. And uh, so I told my wife, we can forget that. She said, well, we made the pledge. Let's see what God does. I'll write out one-twelfth of the pledge every month, and when we run out of money, we won't give because God doesn't plan, expect you to give what you don't have. Well, we never ran out of money. Nor did we have a rich uncle that died, nor did we find oil in the backyard. I can't tell you what happened. But that taught my wife and I something, and we began to realize that giving is one of the greatest privileges that we have. You know, at the Lord's Supper, we celebrate what God has done for us. During the time of the offering, we celebrate what we do for God. It's a very important time. And so we began just to give a little more each year. It's amazing. In fact, I read a book that said you should give until it hurts. Well, I can tell you it hasn't hurt yet. And, and 
I don't mean if you keep giving, you get more, but that's been our experience. All I want to say is this. In this faith promise, will you think about maybe giving a little more than you gave last year and see what God does? Not because he needs it. Because you need the blessing. You need the joy of giving. You might think about crossing through if you've got a number already written down and sticking a bigger number there. It might be quite a blessing to you. Well, I told you about John Patton. Let me end with this. I told you in 1858, John Patton went to the New Hebrides. It wasn't a trip like the trip I took. It only took two days to get to Vanuatu when I went. It took him seven months to get there by boat. He'd had a great ministry in England or in Scotland. The people said, don't go. You're doing things nobody else could do. He said, God's called me to the South Pacific. One old man in the presbytery, a man named Dixon, stood up and said, John, John, don't go. The cannibals, the cannibals, they'll get you. You'll be eaten by cannibals. John Patton said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in age. Soon you're going to be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. I confess if I can live and die serving and honoring my Savior, it will make no difference to me if I'm eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals. In the great day, my resurrected body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. And God used him mightily, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he wants to do the same with you and your church. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text, these last words of Jesus. May they penetrate our hearts. May we truly, through these words, hear the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. Hearing him say that we're going to do greater things than he did. Hearing him say that it's better that I leave. Because when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Hickson, in Samaria, and the world. We pray these things in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.